You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's Good message. Good morning, everyone. If, um, if you are somewhat new to our community, then you perhaps have been spared from um, a little saying that I can tend to repeat ad nauseum in different seasons of our church life. And today, I think, might be one of the clearest examples of why I have repeated this phrase over and over and over. One of the things that we try to do is that there are a couple of different approaches that you can take to the preaching ministry of any church. One approach is for the uh, preaching ministry to be primarily an, a large Bible study and where you're, you're kind of digging in kind of some of the details of the scripture and you're looking at background information and contextual information and you're growing in your knowledge of not just the scripture but the context in which scripture was written. Another approach to the preaching ministry is to think through and be sensitive to the struggles and the challenges that the congregation is facing and then construct messages that kind of take a topic and then go to the Bible to search its wisdom and then present its wisdom to the congregation in a way that it's practical, practical and actionable. And if, you'll listen, if you listen to many preachers, what you see is typically there is a, there is a leaning to one expression over the other. Now, I'm sure I have my blind spots, and I'm sure that I tend to go overboard one direction over the other from time to time. My goal is that we experience a little bit of both this in, in, on Sunday mornings, that we do a little bit like this is our living room, and we're sitting down with our coffee and our scones, and we are opening up the scriptures, and we're having a Bible study together. Obviously, the venue doesn't allow, though, mutual conversation to take place, and so that really hinders that bit of it. But I also want to create space for us to say, okay, now that we understand the scripture a little bit better, hopefully, um, let's talk about how we can cooperate with what the spirit is saying through the scripture to our hearts about how we're called to respond. So one of the ways that we have a saying that we've created to kind of encapsulate this approach is that we believe the Bible has to be read first as his story and their story. Their story being mostly ancient Israel and then a bit of the Christian story tacked on at the very end. And so we want to contextualize how the scriptures are written uh, and so that we can appreciate what it's saying to their story. Only then are we prepared to ask questions of, okay, how does this apply to our story and then more specifically, how does it apply to my story? In general, evangelicals have been taught to read the Bible in the opposite order. I read the Bible and the first question on my mind is, what does this mean for my story? Then we perhaps extrapolate that and figure, well, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, how does this then apply to our story? And then may or may not ever getting around to thinking through how these scriptural principles apply in their story and what it means to the ultimate sto redemptive story of God that's being told by the biblical narrative. So, so that's what we're doing. And this morning is going, to, is going to be one of the clearest examples of this because we are going to look at a passage that has been, become unbelievable controversial in our day and age because people assume that Paul is writing about gender roles. 
Now, I want to say from the very beginning, I do not believe that the Bible constructs a detailed vision of, quote, biblical gender roles that are to be applied for all people at all times. I perfectly respect anyone's opinion if they disagree with that, and I would love to have coffee and let's talk about it and learn from one another. But I don't think that the Bible has that in there, and I think you would want to be very cautious about approaching it that way because... Biblical patriarchs made some horrible moves as husbands. And so if you mean by a biblical marriage that if you're in a tight pickle, maybe you'll offer your wife to another man, well, then I think that you should not pursue that biblical marriage. If by biblical marriage you mean as the husband, I'm called to lay down my life in service to my wife and family because I'm taking my cue from the example of Jesus Christ, well, then yes, I would hope you would pursue a biblical marriage. But do you see, both marriages are biblical, but only one is Christ-like. Now, that's a hard question for evangelicals to think through. But when we interpret the scriptures and we say, some have understood it this way, some have understood it that way, what you want to do is say, okay, are both of these views biblical? Well, they seem to be. They seem to be some biblical rationale behind them. Okay, well then I'm gonna be humble and say, I don't agree with your interpretation, but I respect how you got there. Fine. But then we have to ask, to ask the other question, not is it biblical, but is it Christ-like? Now, if we're not uncomfortable enough, I'll give you another example. It's biblical to believe that God wants you to kill your enemies. I could go to the Old Testament and create rationale for why it might be on God's heart for us to have violence toward unbelievers. In fact, there is so much there that it has been utilized that way in the past. I mean, if you're familiar with concepts of just war, some of those concepts come from our reading of the Old Testament. It's biblical. It is also biblical to say, do not do violence to your enemies, forgive them and offer them up mercy because I can also go to places in scriptures and I can make a case for why we should not pursue violent responses to our enemies. So both views are biblical, but only one is Christ-like. Both views are not Christ-like. As a Christian, a follower of Jesus, because I'm not an old covenant Jew under the old covenant with Yahweh. That's not where, who I am. I am a person that is the recipient of the invitation into the inclusive new covenant, and I follow Jesus. Not just through a book that recorded his writings, but I follow Jesus through his literal presence with me through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So my source of ultimate authority is right here, not here, not out there except for the extent that God is everywhere, then of course, God is my authority out there, but I think you see the point that I'm trying to make. Well, it's important that we remember that whenever we get ready to apply certain passages of scripture, and this one is a great example. We're gonna be looking at Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. We're gonna do this in part one and part two. I'm splitting up the passages that talk about husbands, wives, and children, and the passages talk about slaves and masters. Because we're not gonna dodge this conversation. 
We're gonna go into it knowing that our con- there's some confusion and frankly, as a modern American, a little bit embarrassment about those passages, right? So, so let, let's talk about it. Let's work it out together. We'll do that next week. This week, we're gonna talk about principles that Paul is articulating for how the gospel transforms the structure of the home. How the gospel transforms the structure of the home. And even though we're starting in verse 18, we don't wanna forget verse 17, because verse 17 creates the introductory statement that, that leads into these instructions. And what did he say in chapter three, verse 18? Let's sum it up this way. In everything that you do, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he is going into how does the ethic of doing everything that I do in the name of Jesus Christ, how does that relate to the modern home structures that we have been given in our context? And Paul says, here's how we're gonna do it. Now, uh, let's just jump in here. Let's, let's stop with the preliminary remarks. Um, so here we are in Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. Now, before we jump in and, and look at this, we, we, I, didn't, I actually forgot to put my copy of the scripture, but you have your Bibles in front of you. I, the preacher, do not because I only had my notes. But in general, you'll see where it opens up. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hus- uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your um, your, your children, slaves, obey your masters. Masters, take care of your slaves or your servants or those with whom you are responsible. This is how we do it. Now, lest we assume, like some have been told, that what Paul is doing is he is detailing God's plan for the family. That is rubbish. The only way that we can take that interpretive approach is to say, okay, as a father, I have to obey what God says to me about my wife. I have to obey what God says to me about my children. And I have to obey what God says to me about my slaves. Now, how many of you here in contemporary America are comfortable with that interpretive approach? Certainly not I. I wanna understand what the context is going on here and not be simplistic in my thinking so that I can honor the scripture and be obedient to faithfulness to Jesus at the same time. And so if I take one section of that passage literally, then to be consistent, I have to take all of it literally. Well, if you talk to everyone, a lot of people love wives submit to your husbands. Less people love husbands lay down for your your life for your wife and nobody likes, and we're all embarrassed that Paul said, slaves obey your masters, right? So we already know emotionally, we have some inconsistency with the way we tend to approach this passage. Let's see if we can't understand the total narrative of scripture today and and come to a closer clarity on how we're supposed to respond to passages like this. So I am going to begin with, and I ask you to please be patient with me because We got to reason together from the scriptures a little bit here or we're not being faithful to our work. And so if if whatever is said on the front page of your notes is a challenge, let's wait till we get through the second page of the notes and then send me the emails. But by the way, they're stamped. You know that, don't you? So when you send me an email that's during the sermon, I know you stopped listening at some point to tell me what you didn't appreciate about what I just said. 
So at least hide your emails till like 1131 or something like that. Come on, just be smart, people. Uh, (laughs) That was a joke. Um, So preliminary principles when we talk about Christ in the home, number one and two are very important principles that we need to understand in contextualizing this verse. Patriarchy is a consequence and a judgment of the fall. It is not, and just bear with me, we're gonna go to the scripture. It is not, as some of us might be told, God's organization for the family. Patriarchy is a consequence and a judgment of the fall. Secondly, redemptive equality is the rule of the kingdom of God. Redemptive equality is the rule of the kingdom of God. Now, let's turn to the scriptures. First of all, patriarchy is a consequence and a judgment of the fall. This is not God's created order. If you wanna find God's created order for the family, you gotta go back to Genesis one and two. From there, what you see is oneness and unity that is overemphasized by even saying that male and female came from the same body, which who knew that would be such a controversial topic to bring up in today's society, but it is. And the idea did not begin with contemporary progressive thinking You see hints of this way back there in Genesis. There is one body. Out of that one body is created male and female. And the calling is for male and female together equally to reflect the image of God. One part of that image is incomplete. Is male and female have been made in the image of God. And from there you see that humanity as equal partners was given responsibility to be vice regents of Yahweh and take stewardship over this beautiful creation that he gave us as a gift. Now we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in close order, but in reality we have no idea of the time lapse between the story of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Maybe the author intended for for to be a day or two, Maybe it was a hundred years. We simply don't know with the exception that they didn't have children in that time, which seems implausible, but I digress. So after the fall, here's what Genesis 3.16 says. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Post-eating, post-fall, post-consuming the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this is when patriarchy is introduced. It is a mistake to say patriarchy is God's order for the human family. It is introduced after the fall. And so, in fact, this word desire, your desire will be for your husband, it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter four when God comes to Cain and he says, sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. That word translated master in the Hebrew is the same word that's translated desire. So what it's speaking to is this conflict of the genders. Conflict of the genders happens because of the work of the deceiver and the disobedience of Adam and Eve. It is not the original plan that God intended for his created order. And so, and so we see here that this tension is then created. And therefore, the rest of the Bible is written to a patriarchal society. That doesn't mean that God is endorsing the patriarchy. It means that God in his infinite wisdom and mercy 
speaks to us from within the system we find ourselves so that we can see his truth. Because if it exists outside of our systems, we're threatened by that truth. That's not truth we're open to. We're open to truth that, that, that gets revealed within the system. So God speaks within that system. That does not mean that God is endorsing, endorsing patriarchy in any more ways that if, if a leader in the Old Testament is being instructed about being warned about whether or not when he gets extra wives, which they should be Jewish and they shouldn't be foreign, does that mean that God is withdrawing his original intended intention of a monogamous relationship that we see in Genesis 1 and 2? No, it doesn't do that. And in fact, when the full revelation of the gospel comes, Paul's going to come on to say, listen, if any man has more than one wife, he's not fit for leadership in the, in, in the church of God. So we know that it's not God's intention, and yet he gives instruction in that context because it was the way that the revelation of the, tr of, of the, of the truth of the gospel began to be passed on from one generation to the next among his people. Does that make sense? So, so instructions in a context is, does not mean an endorsement of that context. It just means that God is wise and he's gracious and he's merciful to meet us exactly where we are to remove as many obstacles as possible so that we can see his beauty. So patriarchy and I should say, and matriarchy must give way to mutual submission in the new covenant gospel of Christ. So one of the principles you'll see in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, look them up and set them side by side. It's really clear Paul is using the same context because those passages flow organizationally right side by side together. Now granted, the articulation in Ephesians has more detail than the art articulation in Colossians, but the major themes are all there, apples for apples. And one of the ways that he expands upon this idea in Ephesians is at the end. So after he's spoken his part about speaking to one another in Psalms and hymns, and just before he goes into the section of Ephesians that is instructions for the way households are supposed to be organized, this is what he has to say. Verse, uh, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 20. Giving things always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now this becomes very important because it is the overall guiding principle. So therefore, when Paul says in the next verse, wives submit to your husbands, he is not calling them to do anything beyond what he's already called everyone to do in the church regardless of their gender so just because he says wives submit to your husbands doesn't mean that's the only way submission moves any more than if, i mean if you're going to make that case then you have to say when paul says husbands love your wives then wives are free from the obligation to love their husbands because he doesn't he doesn't mention it to them no both husband and wives are supposed to love one another and both husband and wife are supposed to mutually submit to one another under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, so, so that, 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 I hope you can see, this isn't as controversial as it seems. It's, it's really practical if you just kind of look at the context. So this patriarchy that's a consequence of the fall is, is replaced by this idea of mutual submission in the new covenant gospel community. And so the other principle that I'm working off of, preliminary principle, is that redemptive equality is the rule in the kingdom of God. 
And again, whatever we interpret about what Paul says about the Christian household, we can't do it in such a way that it subverts or rejects what he's written elsewhere. He's not canceling out what he wrote in Galatians with what he's writing in Colossians. We have to understand how these two realities might coexist together. So in Galatians, he says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. The consequence of patriarchy and matriarchy have been replaced by redemptive equality in the kingdom of God. That's the basic principle that I'm operating off of as I walk through this text. So once again, as we get ready to, as we get ready to move forward, let's pause and remember, everything that is said is an outworking of what Paul says in chapter three, verse 17. And you have it here in your notes, it'll be on the overhead. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father. Now, once again, we have to clarify when you hear that phrase, name of Jesus. Most of us were taught, this is a kind of a prayer incantation that legitimizes or justifies your prayer, okay? Yes, thank God for the food. Yes, ask God for the healing. But if you really want to seal the deal and get your, prayer, your prayers answered, then you obey the Bible and you say, in Jesus' name I pray. Rubbish, that is not what that's talking about. It, it is not an incantation to give you one up on the Almighty so that you get through the loophole that he gave of, well, they didn't say in Jesus' name, so I don't have to answer that prayer. What a silly, petty God we create for ourselves. I, there is someone like that, namely me. Luckily, God's not like that. And so, um, and so when it says, must be in the name of Jesus, it's talking about living from the nature of Jesus because in ancient times, names reveal character and nature. So it's more helpful whenever you see in the name of Jesus to replace that in with uh, that inward name with the inward nature, the nature of Jesus Christ. And I can't believe I just said the inward from the pulpit. I apologize. Hopefully it was contextualized with name and nature. So, um, so it means that all relational actions must be pursued in the nature of Jesus. And all relational action, actions must be nurtured in an atmosphere of thanksgiving. Does that make sense? I'm taking that from what Paul says in, chapter, in verse 17. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All relational actions must be pursued in the nature of Jesus and all relational actions must be nurtured in an atmosphere of thanksgiving. Now then we're ready to look at this passage. Because ironically, what Paul is doing here is he's being actually, he's modeling the radically subversive nature of the gospel. He is actually turning the assumptions upside down on their heads because in that day and time, the instructions to wives and children are not sub subversive and they are not unusual. You would expect to hear that from the lips of both Romans and Jews and other followers of different pagan religions. The idea of their saying to wives, you must submit to your husband, children, you must uh, obey your parents, slaves, you must obey your masters. 
This is status quo counsel. This is not odd or subversive at all. However, the instructions that are given to men is in fact radically subversive because he is speaking to structures of hierarchy and these relationships moved in a linear fashion up to down in terms of honor and down to up in terms of service. They only moved one direction. They were not reciprocal. Wives, children, and slaves owed obedience up the line to the man, but man did not owe obedience down the line to anyone else. Those obligations were not in place, nor were they reciprocal. Just because those at the bottom of the line showed honor to the man on top didn't mean that the man on top had to show honor to those below. Does that make sense? They were linear and non-reciprocal. Paul is taking that system and he's flipping it on his head because it would have been unusual for the counsel he gives to the men, which is this. Husbands and fathers. I'm sorry, the instructions of the wives are submit to your husbands, children obey your parents. Then to the men, husbands and fathers, love your wife. Do not become embittered toward her. Do not exasperate your children. Do not discourage your children. So, everybody take a stretch a little bit. You whisper to yourself, Artie's such a great guy. Because I thought lots of hours about this for several weeks. And I just can't get away, it's 11 o'clock, so I've got just a little bit of time here. We need to take a moment to see what Jesus says about power and authority in the kingdom of God, or it's very difficult for us to understand how we apply this in the context of our homes. We'll do this as quickly as possible, but I've left this in your notes because I would implore you to take time with your journal open or in spiritual conversations with your friend or partner and talk about these verses. These are under-communicated realities of discipleship. I believe the revelation that Jesus brings about the use of authority and power in the kingdom of God could open the door to a literal revival in our generation if we would be willing to rediscover it because it is rarely ever talked about and it has the potential to introducing into your life such profound radical transformation that in six months you won't recognize your current relationships because they will be brimming with the flourishing of the shalom peace of God because you responded to the call of your savior and how we're supposed to use influence, power, and authority in the kingdom of God. Big promise, huh? All right. So at least it motivated to give me five minutes to walk through these scriptures. So let's walk through these. There's a lot of them here is why I say this. If, if, if I was sitting out there and it was 11 o'clock and I saw all this line of text, I would be disheartened and I would begin to go into starvation mode. We are going to hit these rather swiftly, but they are important. Okay. Passages that give instructions for the use of authority and power in the kingdom of God. Number one, Mark 10. In Mark 10, we have this example where James and John try to... Try to pull a fast one and they get away from the other 10 and they, they use mom, you know, because mom will do things for their boys that other people won't. In fact, someone found my sermon notes this morning and I said, well, if you want me to sign them, I think they're going for $50 to $100 on eBay if they're my original manuscripts. 
Very quickly, without hesitation, someone says, who's buying those, your mom? So yeah, we, touche, I, I had to respect it, got to respect the game. And so, um, uh, but this is what happens here. The mom goes to Jesus and said, hey, um, JC, I hope you really enjoyed that um, kosher lasagna that I made the other day. We all enjoyed having you over the house. By the way, I have a question. How about whenever the kingdom gets fulfilled, you come into your kingdom, my boys get number one and number two spot at your right and left hand. And John and James, are, they're, they're not embarrassed by their mom taking up for them. They're encouraging it. Well, this really takes off the rest of the group. And so Jesus says, listen, look, if you want it, and if it were mine to give, you could have it. Unfortunately, it's not my mind to give, but since you're willing to serve at my level, you are gonna get to suffer in the same way that I do. Is that a deal, boys? Well, there's crickets at that end. You don't hear from them the rest of the, of the paragraph. Um, but so what Jesus says, he uses an example and say, my friends, you don't understand. My kingdom will not reflect the hierarchical power structures of the world. I am here to take those systems down and liberate you with the kingdom of God's perspective, which is ironically the opposite of the way the world systems are built. And here's what he says. When the 10 disciples heard this, they, became to, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are, who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high places in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Principle number one, in the kingdom of God, power and authority are never for privilege. They're always for service. Number two, John 13. It's the time that Jesus is spending his last moments with his followers, his disciples, before he makes his way head straight into his execution. What does he choose to do? He chooses to serve them. John 13, 12 through 15. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an what? Example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Radical in itself, because again, the guy on top is the one doing the most lowly of service. Washing the feet meant not just you were washing uh, the dust, you were washing the dust and the urine and the mud and the feces, anything that would have been collected in open-toed shoes with, with uh, non-asphalt roads that were moved by animals. That's what that position required. It is touching the most Um, this is what I'm looking for. The most uh, repulsive attribute of the person at the table because of the smell and the lowly. This is what Jesus does. Now that's remarkable in and of itself, but here's what's really remarkable. In that room, 
There were faithful disciples. And there was a denier. And there was a doubter. And there was a betrayer. We would divide those people out according to devotional hierarchy and elevate one over the other. It's not what Jesus did. He offered, he offered equal service to them all. Now, listen, I'm just the messenger here. There's a part of me that doesn't like this any more than you do. But principle number two for power and authority in the kingdom of God is that service is offered equally, even to the quote, undeserving. Principle number three, this is the final one and then we'll close. It's found in Philippians chapter two, verses one through eight. One of the most important passages for the would-be follower of Jesus. This is talking about Jesus's role in, in moving from eternity past into his temporary time on earth. Verse two, chapter, chapter two, verse one. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, any fellowship to the, with the spirit, and if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do I take from these passages as principles for authority and power in the kingdom of God? Number one, in the kingdom of God, power is for service, never privilege. Number two, in the kingdom of God, service is offered equally even to the quote undeserving. Number three, in the kingdom of God, the leader gladly lays down their rights to bless those they are serving. Tall order, huh? Uh, I think I'll skip on the Jesus spirituality. Give me that good old evangelical spirituality. I, I won't dance anymore. I won't say the rated R cuss words. I'll just say the PG-13 cuss words. And I won't listen to Quiet Riot if I'm in a five block radius from the church. Deal? Because that's what I did. I had Quiet Riot and I had Amy Grant popped out Quiet Riot when I was coming down toward the church, popped in Amy Grant, so angels were surrounding me whenever I pulled into the church parking lot. Look, I mastered that spirituality. It was easy, easy morality, man. Just camp out with the morality that's easy for you and then condemn all of those who can't do it. The problem is it introduced the cancer of self-righteousness at the core of who I was. And as a Christian, Daily, my devotion to my morality was killing me a little bit at a time till I reached the point 
where up here was all Christian and my heart was completely dark and I was a wonderful candidate to give myself over to the darkness of addiction, trying to find that which I was promised I would find in evangelical Christianity, but I didn't because I was sold a bait and switch, a deception. I was invited to conform to morality, not to be transformed by the creator of all. But hopefully we're on a different road now. We're moving in that other alternate direction now. So for our story, as we come to a close, in the kingdom of God, the needs of the wife take precedence over the needs of the husband. That's how I read this. And the reason why I do that is if we're going to start parsing things out, go to Ephesians 5. Men, you're the only one told to die. That's not a universal instruction. It's only given to you. You get to be the one who chooses to die, to lay down your rights. In the kingdom of God, fathers nurture their children in love rather than intimidate them with authority. These are the direct applications that I'm carrying in my heart. However, I know what you're thinking, some of you smart ones. You go, wait a second, I thought you just made a case that this was for everybody. You got me. Let's move on to some application to everybody in the household, shall we? Now, before we do, we're gonna do this and we're come to a close. When we do, the worship team's gonna come forward and sing a reflective song. We'd like for you to come up. We'll start from the back corner over here and you'll come down this way, receive the elements, go back to your seat. This corner will come down this way. And right there, my eyes are unclear, but it looks like a banker is sitting back there. Uh, so you'll take out the back. No, it's not my brother. Um, come back up this way, go through to your seat. Hold on to your elements. I will come back at the end of service and we'll take them together. So what are you gonna do in the interim? Well, I have some prayer suggestions for you if you would all stand with me. Husbands, when you look into the eyes of your wife, do you see a soul that is flourishing? This has been one of the most convicting questions of my entire marriage. And I'm watching our time, but indulge me. Whenever I was young in grade school, we don't understand the stress that our parents are under. All I know from my memories is they had a really, really hard time. I'm guessing, but I don't know, that they contemplated maybe terminating the marriage. But they worked through it. And shortly after they worked through it, we became church folk. I'm guessing that was connected. But one day in our little house in Lone Grove on Broadway Street, so this is when we were still town people, not country folk yet. My dad picked up his wallet and something fell out of it. And I looked to see what it was. It was the oddest thing. It was an old expired driver's license uh, of my mother's. And I looked at it and I asked him, I said, Dad, why, why do you have, I mean, I was like seven or eight or nine. Well, why do you have mom's driver's license in your wallet? He said, well, that's an old one. I said, okay, but why do you carry it around? And I don't know why he did this because I couldn't have comprehended what he was doing. However, it has stayed with me in the most significant places of my married life, he handed me the driver's license picture and he said, look into your mother's eyes. It is my job to make sure she never has that look in her eyes again. 
man, that has moved me so profoundly throughout the years. When I feel so right and I look at someone who I've just crushed and destroyed with my words and attitudes. And at that moment, it doesn't matter if I'm right or not, I've been doing the work of the enemy. That's what I was doing. So husbands, look into the eyes of your, life, of your wife. Do you see a soul that's flourishing? And in keeping consistently with our hermeneutic wives, when you look into the eyes of your husband, do you see a soul that is flourishing? Mothers and fathers, look into the eyes of your children. Do you see a soul that is flourishing? Children, look into your eyes of your mom and dad. Do you bring joy to your parents by learning to honor their wisdom and guidance? That's the question before you. Your activity as we take communion is to listen to the spirit, obey his leading, and share his experiences. I'm not saying that you're responsible for all of the wounds in the souls of your partner or your children, but I am saying it's likely that you've contributed. And you know what? You have a redemptive moment to listen to the spirit about maybe some things that you need to correct or some things you need to confess and apologize for. I say do it because your heart will be set free and theirs will as well.